The Brief is supported by Bloomberg Connects, the free arts and culture app. RIBA President Muyiwa Oki slams Labour's £28 billion green U-turn. Michael Gove approves controversial South Bank tower plans. The public toilet crisis isolating vulnerable people. And delivery riders stage a Valentine's Day strike demanding fair wages. My name is Saya Bachada. I'm an architect and partner at Cullinan Studio, and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's big stories in architecture, planning and housing news. Welcome to The Brief from Open City. My guest this week is Rob Fien. Rob is the director of the London Society. Welcome to the show, Rob. Thanks for having me again. RIBA President Muyiwa Oki has responded to Labour's ditching of its £28 billion a year green investment pledge with a warning that future generations may, quote, pay the price. This was reported in the AJ this week. The flagship policy, which was announced back in 2021, had been a central plank of Labour's strategy to reach climate targets and secure green jobs. But last week, the party abandoned it, making a major U-turn that sparked fury from organisations ranging from the UK Green Building Council to Unite, Labour's biggest union backer. While the party never announced a detailed plan of how the £28 billion annual figure would be spent, up to £6 billion a year would have gone towards loans and grants for families to improve home insulation, and £500 million would have been spent on grants for companies creating green jobs each year. Oki responded to the announcement by pointing to the 19 million UK homes that are still in dire need of upgrading, a number which is likely to increase as the climate emergency intensifies. He said, quote, Ambitious and sustained investment from whomever forms the next government and the private sector will be critical to address the scale of this challenge. And there's a solution. We must future-proof homes with a well-funded national retrofit strategy, a long-term plan that will also create jobs, boost green skills and level up the country. Act now or future generations will pay the price. Oki's disappointment in Labour's decision was mirrored by many, including Simon McWhirter, the Deputy Chief Executive of the UK Green Building Council, who said, quote, Dialing up investment in our net zero future is not just the consensus recommendation of the vast majority of industry, business and society. It is central to Labour's promise to bring down household energy bills and revitalise the UK's towns, cities and infrastructure. He went on, Stimulating our green economy with clear, robust policy commitments is the most fiscally prudent and economically beneficial strategy for tackling the UK's most chronic problems, including energy security, cost of living, long-term health and social challenges and climate breakdown. So, Rob, what's this all about? Until now, Labour's Green Investment Pledge was um, it formed a pivotal role in the party's plans to reach um, decarbonisation targets, boost the green economy. Um, you know, why has the building environment sector um, reacted with such disappointment to the announcement that this policy is going to be ditched? There is some hope that we are about to receive a new government at some point this year. And this breeds a source of excitement because the UK has fallen woefully behind on all of its sustainability targets. Um, There was recently an announcement from EU lawmakers that due to Brexit, you know, we had kind of severed links with international programmes and that we're not, and and that when government policies reflect that, it means there's a much greater lack of investment in new technologies and partnerships. So we do look to the government to provide that certainty and then other people feel they can come along and invest in um, new strategies. 
And without that, everything starts to collapse and we just can't move forward. So I actually do really agree with the RBA president um, that we need a, a really bold vision if we're going to enact on the challenges of climate change. Yeah, and some of the figures quoted relate directly to, um, you know, UK householders, you know, people upgrading their homes. That's a real meaningful benefit to individual homeowners. You know, the cost of upgrading like a three-bedroom house in the UK, just the insulation for the walls, roof and floor is, you know, around um, £15,000 if you look at most kind of manufacturers and installers website. People don't have that kind of money lying around. So it really needs some sort of government investment. And it it seems like such a shame. You know, how do you think, you know, ordinary people are going to be affected by this decision? I think it's going to have a huge impact on daily lives. Fuel poverty is real and energy prices are rising. We know what to do to solve the problem. So it's not like it's a mystery. And as Oki has pointed out, if we invest the money now, we're going to see those benefits for years to come, which is going to boost the economy. You know, we're looking at new skills, new jobs to enact these policies. It is going to cost billions, but we kind of can't afford not to make that investment now. It's important for people to realise that the economy doesn't work like a household budget, even though sometimes it's made out that way. So you put money in and, and the pot grows. So I think what people want to see is they want to see their bills coming down and they want to see a strong economy. So I think ultimately, this is exactly what we should be doing. And it would be great to show the rest of the world that it can be achieved. Yeah, I mean, you're right that it's a huge amount of money. You know, Labour have sort of blamed this U-turn on the fact that the Conservative Party haven't handled public finances, you know, well enough. So, you know, Laura Trott, the Chief Secretary to the Treasury, said Keir Starmer was axing, quote, what he claimed to be his central economic policy for purely short-term campaigning reasons. Um, you know, what's going on here? Do you think it's simply part of Labour's, you know, bid for the, the next election to appear like they're fiscally kind of tight? Do you think this is all just, um, you know, party party posturing? I think it's a mix, actually. I think that the Conservatives have always used this fiscally responsible approach as a cudgel to beat Labour with. And so obviously a labourer quite, I think, quite cleverly trying to head this off at the pass by saying, you say our policies are unrealistic, so actually we're going to curb them now rather than allowing you to take us on with this. So that does seem short-termism. I do think we also have to accept that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng wiped billions off the UK economy. So I, I do think there's an element of truth in the fact that Labour are now readjusting their figures for a new situation. Appearing fiscally responsible is very important to getting into government. And then, you know, perhaps we can see what happens from there. I also think just saying 28 billion is too abstract. And so I think we should be breaking it down. Yeah, I mean, that 28 billion on green investment, you know, it influenced a key part of US President Joe Biden's strategy for achieving financial and environmental targets. Um, it was called the Inflation Reduction Act, which was passed into federal law in 2022. So that aims to kind of curb inflation in part by by large scale investment into domestic green energy production. So, Rob, do you think Labour's decision to market this policy as a purely green initiative is you know part of the reason behind its failure? Why are green policies less popular vote winners than alternatives such as the US's Inflation Reduction Act, which puts the focus on the financial side of, of green policy decisions? 
I was recently listening to an interview with um, Mick Lynch from the RMT union, and he was basically saying that while he doesn't agree with this lack of vision, he can totally see why working people can't get behind it. He literally said you could take all of the aspirations and break them down into really clear messaging. I think Mick is actually, you know, really good at communicating with the whole general public and actually lots of people across the political divide, even if they don't agree with him, what he says makes sense. So I think I think Labour need to listen to him and just need to funnel their commitments uh, into a series of realistic proposals that will demonstrate how this kind of investment is good for them. So I'm I'm all for a better publicity campaign. I would say that. I work in um, public relations. And I do also think that throwing out grand statements is not going to necessarily get them where they want to go. And also it might make them appear like they're just spending willy-nilly without having a plan. And that's what people are really worried about. Yeah, I think that's right on the money there. I think some specificity is needed for people to fully understand what's what's going on. Um, meanwhile, looking more specifically at London... Sean Berry, who is a Green member of the London Assembly, has called on London Mayor Sadiq Khan to force councils to provide more bus lanes and cycling infrastructure. So Berry said there was, quote, a looming delivery gap in terms of the number of bus and cycle lanes to meet Khan's target to achieve a 27% reduction in car journeys in the capital by 2030. So Rob, what do you make of this? Is Khan doing enough to keep London on track to reduce car usage and meet its own green obligations? I'm personally very in favour of reducing cars. I think a lot of people are. I think even drivers sitting in traffic jams. However, I think we have to understand the context of all of this. We've just come out of a pandemic where we saw the use of public transport massively drop and we're still only at 80% of pre-pandemic levels. Khan's also fighting multiple political battles simultaneously. If you just look at the ULES example, that was a policy instigated by Boris Johnson, but it's now become a massive uh, political football with the Prime Minister talking about a war on motorists. So I think there's definitely more that Sadiq needs to be doing. I think he is trying really hard. Um, I think what's also interesting is that essentially everyone is in an election year right now. So Khan's trying to seem solid to regain the mayorship. Sean Berry is also keen on making headlines right now because she's going for MP in Brighton, Green MP. And I think also she has simultaneously, in case she doesn't get that, I think she's simultaneously counts, um, campaigning to remain on the GLA council. So, you know, I think everyone here is trying to make a lot of noise and seem like they're doing the best thing for Londoners. Yeah, so everyone's kind of using those those culture wars that we, you know, we, we discussed plenty on this programme as arsenal for everything that you've just said, you know, the, the, the election year. So, um, yeah, we'll have to watch how all of that develops over, over the next few months. On to our next story. Michael Gove has approved controversial proposals by Make Architects to redevelop the former ITV studios on London's South Bank. This was reported by The AJ this week. The 25-storey office project for developer Mitsubishi Estate London and Co. Re was approved by Lambeth Council in March 2022, despite receiving more than 260 objections, including two local councillors and the local MP. Kate Hoey, the former long-standing MP for Vauxhall and the area's current MP, Florence Eshalomi, had both lobbied the government to call in the proposal, which involves demolishing the existing ITV studios on the prominent one-hectare site. 
the community secretary expressed concerns over the proposal's impact on the designated heritage assets, including Dennis Lasden's Grade 2 star-listed National Theatre and Grade 2 listed IBM building, but concluded that the public benefits such as employment opportunities, improved public realm and the creation of affordable creative workspace outweighed the harm to the surroundings. Meanwhile, over on Oxford Street, retailer Marks & Spencer is challenging Michael Gove's rejection of its Pilbrow and Partners design demolition and rebuild of its Marble Arch store in the High Court. In November, M&S received permission to proceed with a legal challenge against Gove's decision to block the controversial demolition of its flagship store, which dates back to 1929. The community secretary refused the plan last July, citing both heritage and design concerns, as well as its embodied carbon impact, but M&S is challenging the ruling on procedural grounds. During the hearing, which is taking place as we record this episode on Wednesday the 14th, the retailer will have to prove to the High Court that the government made an error in its decision-making. So, Rob, let's start with Make South Bank proposal, um, which will provide 79,000 square metres of office and commercial space, as well as 7,000 square metres of cultural space and up to 4,000 square metres of space for shops, cafes and bars. What do you make of this scheme? And, you know, why has it been so unpopular with both the local community and heritage organisations like 20th Century Society and Historic England. I grew up in London and um, I can actually remember what the South Bank used to be like. It was kind of devoid of life and completely unused. And then through some careful strategies and planning, it has been kind of revitalised and it's become this amazing, vibrant hub of activity. And so I think we're quite quite right to be worried about a project that's going to have such a significant impact on the riverside it's very large it's very imposing and it's i mean we know it's going to have some kind of impact on the public realm it kind of reminds me of the overdevelopment of the liverpool docks um, which lost liverpool their unesco world heritage status so i think it just goes to show if you build too much in the wrong places it can have a very detrimental effect and I think also, if you've got this many objections from local people and heritage organisations, I think we should be listening to them. Yeah, that's kind of what the system is is designed for, isn't it? And um, a lot of our listeners will be very familiar with that stretch of South Bank. You know, it's it's an iconic view that you know everyone knows very well. And the sort of regeneration you're talking about, I think it was at the turn of the century. Rick Mather, architects were involved in some really careful replanning of the South Bank to make it a proper vibrant river frontage so it's a it's a very much loved area which probably is why it's had such a sort of intense um, backlash against the scheme. Yeah I, I suppose it's interesting that Gove protected M&S which is the destruction of a 19th century building and yet he's fine with the demolition of modernist structures along the south bank so maybe there's also a, a sort of a slight unspoken dig there that this is not our built heritage Whereas I would argue the opposite, that the South Bank is known for that. And you see those iconic building silhouettes on kind of tea towels and posters and books, and it's incredibly popular. And I think also we're now looking at an age for those buildings where you could easily just say, this is heritage. Absolutely. I mean, we've been following the M&S Oxford Street saga, and, you know, it really has become a contentious development. You know, why do you think the retailer is so adamant about a complete demolition and rebuild to you know to the extent it's taking them out of the high court um rather than retrofit like you know what's what's wrong with retrofit yes 
it's it's this is so strange, isn't it? Because you'd have to almost be living under a rock not to be up to date with this. Never in my memory has the built environment been in the headlines for so so much and for so long, which obviously I think is a testimony to the hard work of campaigners. Um, MS is really digging its heels in here. It's pretty safe to assume that's going to be linked to profits. A new build um, scheme on this site, it's prime real estate, central London. You know, not only I think is it going to improve their facilities, but also they've been a bit coy about the future of the building as well. So we don't know exactly how it's going to be used or sold off in the future. So there's a whole kind of business model there that they're probably trying to protect. We always keep going back to the to the VAT issue as well. You know, it is um, VAT free for them to build a new building, whereas it's going to be 20%. If they want to retrofit their existing project. So they probably don't want to do that. And maybe as well, I don't want to infer too much, but, you know, could they be worried about setting an uncomfortable precedent for the future of all their projects? They, MS recently managed to squeak through a project on the King's Road in Chelsea. You know, so they did, were successful there, but that project received over 1,300 objections and only about 10 or 15 letters of support. So it's kind of 99% people against. So should the Oxford Street not go their way, you can imagine that in the future that would be cited as an example to say, well, look, there's this much campaigning against it and the, you know, the High Court went in favour of the campaigners, ergo vis-a-vis, we can stop many projects. Yeah, thinking about Oxford Street and and South Bank, I guess taking the opposing view, you you think, you know, these buildings weren't designed for modern life. Uh, maybe the public realm of the existing buildings isn't able to be adapted to a lot of public amenity and really give back to people at ground level. Um, so do you think that that is of less importance, maybe that that flexibility to really redefine the grand plane and and genuinely give things back to the public. Do you think that has less weighting, maybe, than you know retaining those heritage buildings? These things are kind of so nuanced and complex, aren't they? So I think that's definitely part of it, and I think it's great when we do make improvements to Oxford Street, and I think it it should be more of a human centred retail experience than it is right now. I just think that we also see so many international examples of amazing retrofit where you can have your cake and eat it, so you can make improvements to the public realm. I don't think the campaigners are even asking to preserve the entirety of the building. They're just saying, can we look at different models, which hasn't happened really at all. And so it does feel like M&S are feeling quite bullish about this. And um, I have no idea which way it's going to go. So this weekend, The Times published an exclusive interview with Michael Gove in which he warned that the housing crisis was a threat to conservative leadership and even democracy itself. Um, so he was he was talking about the fall in the number of first-time buyers, and he said, quote, it's a barrier to young people feeling that democracy and capitalism aren't working for them. If people think that markets are rigged and a democracy isn't listening to them, then you get, and this is the worrying thing to me, an increasing number of young people saying, I don't believe in democracy, I don't believe in markets. Rob, what do you make of uh, Gove's assessment? Do you think young people today are losing faith in democracy as a result of the housing crisis? I can't keep up with Gove. (laughs) And I don't think anyone else can. I don't think I'm the only one. You know, he's made these statements recently about increasing housing through relaxation of the planning laws and allowing for office-to-resi conversions, etc. 
But it was in December that he watered down housing targets and released that pressure from local authorities, which developers were really upset about. That's just over a month ago. So, you know, there's a huge amount of um, flip-flopping. And the problem with this is it, it brings great uncertainties. So he talks about the markets, but the markets just need to know the parameters to which they're working in. Even if it's, you know, we're in a bad economy or a healthy economy, they just need to know, and then they can assess how to how to invest their money and where to build. It, you know, it was interesting to see that Knight Frank produced a report that um, house builders were actually backing the Labour Party. So I think this constant shifting of the dial just to make headlines and to make people think that you do care about housing isn't working. To answer your your question about faith in the system, I think young people definitely have lost faith in this government to deliver solutions to the housing crisis. I can't speak for what they think about democracy as a whole, but I am really worried about Labour's position on social housing because the vast majority of us know that's a key part of solving the housing crisis and they're just not committed to it. So I I can imagine that a lot of young people will feel disenfranchised by both parties. So on to our next story. More than a decade of austerity and cuts to local councils has led to a dramatic drop in public toilets, something which is disproportionately impacting disabled, homeless and vulnerable people. It's a big issue that affects all of society and something the London Society has started to campaign on recently. A 2019 survey by the Royal Society for Public Health found that three in four people reported a shortage of toilets in their area, and the British Toilet Association estimates that 60% of public leaves have been lost since 2010. Last week, The Guardian asked four people how the decline in public facilities had impacted them. One 72-year-old woman who has multiple sclerosis, MS, and related bladder problems said she had moved the majority of her social life online, adding, quote, I plan fewer outings than I might do otherwise, and it limits where I can go. If I'm not going to have access to a toilet, I try to be home within an hour. Sometimes this proves too long, leading to accidents which can be embarrassing and uncomfortable. Another interviewee explained how visiting the capital with young children is nearly impossible without spending money in cafes or dipping into museums, as their kids need to go to the toilet very frequently. One tour operator said, quote, You see more people just peeing in the streets now. It's not good for the city's economy and small businesses. Tourists complain that they can't find toilets. Sometimes when there are public toilets, you have to use coins to pay. Not so many people carry cash and they don't often give change. Between 2010 and 2020, councils faced a £15 billion real terms reduction to core government funding. The managing director of the British Toilet Association explained, quote, There is no legal requirement on any local authority in this country to provide toilets. And because there's no legislation, there's no additional funding. Councils suddenly had to make significant savings. They had to clean the streets, empty the bins, bury the dead, look after schools and roads, but not toilets. So, Rob... The lack of public toilets is something the London Society actually are acutely aware of. Um, In fact, you had a panel discussion last November on the issue. So why do you think this is such an important issue to be discussing now? This is massively important to the London Society and somewhere where we feel that we can affect real change. You know, we believe that sanitation is core to the well-being of the city, which is not a radically new concept. Um, but I mean, in terms of public lose, you know, the Victorians were all over this. And in the latter half of the 19th century, they instigated lots of public health reforms. 
you know, sadly, they did, or predictably, they did focus on men's loos to begin with. And then this term, the urinary leash, was coined, where women were restricted and how they could move about the city. And campaigning for public toilets was kind of, you know, tied up with the suffrage movement. And it feels like we're going back to those days, whereas although we're kind of having to campaign for loos for everyone, but particularly, as you say, those most in need... What's odd is that there are so many issues that are divisive, but public loos are not one of them. In a recent article in the Architects' Journal, London Society trustee Claire Delmar described it as um, low-hanging fruit that benefits everyone. So it's about public health, but it's also about community cohesion and just getting around your local area. So if you can if you can walk around, that improves the local economy, it promotes active travel, you know, so it's kind of a totally win-win situation and it feels like it would also be a massive um, vote draw as well. Everyone wants public lose. So it just seems crazy that we're in the situation we're in now. Absolutely. And I think some of the personal stories in the Guardian article were really, really helpful because they really drive home how individuals have these needs and they're just, you know, not being met. We've covered this story before on the podcast and the conversations I've had since with people, you know, every other person is affected or knows somebody that is affected by this. And it really limits their ability to kind of engage in social life and in the city. And and you're right about the universal kind of approval for improving this. You know, there was the GLA had, you know, a survey of 3000 people in 2021, and 90% of them agreed more toilet provision was needed. So um, and I bet the 10% were like, What's the question? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, maybe this is the uniting issue that we all need. Um, Rob, what do you think needs to happen in order to improve the provision of public toilets? Are there, you know, do you know any examples of cities which London can be inspired by when it comes to lose? So, thanks to the campaign, I've been talking to loads of people about public toilets, which I am not bored of, and I think it's fantastic. We are now hearing that some local authorities are working on improving their existing uh, infrastructure. So that is happening. The problem is it's really piecemeal and um, it's just based on borough by borough uh, without any kind of overarching strategy. And that's what we need. We need a sort of citywide or a national policy. And we need to make sure that we're kind of assessing the loose that we have and seeing if they can be refurbished and their viability to bring them back into use. Obviously, a lot of them are underground, which means steps. Putting in lifts is expensive. Maintaining lifts is really expensive. So if we're building new public toilets, what are they going to be like and where are they going to be? There is actually the Royal College of Art has a public toilet research unit, which are looking at ways to ensure that public toilets are inclusive as inclusive as possible including small things like oversized locks that can be used by people that have problems gripping which is particularly prevalent in the older community um, children uh, and some disabled people they're also looking at lighting because lighting has a massive impact on neurodiverse communities so if you have harsh lighting in a public loo some people don't want to go into that space and then and then citing you know other cities that we can learn from Claire in her article talked a lot about the um, Tokyo Toilet Project, where they're getting like mega superstar designers and to create public loos. And they then become a sort of beacon in the public realm where people are kind of 
proud of their toilet so they know they're there they improve the public realm and they're kind of like a signal that this is a civilized society which seems to be something we are massively lacking yeah we've covered some of the um the examples that you've mentioned in in uh, tokyo before on the other podcast and i guess maybe what we're looking for is a, a, co- a design competition a paid design competition that could be commissioned to get some people thinking about this sort of thing and get some nice exciting ideas that people can get behind as well yeah there's um uh, not to promote a, a rival podcast because they only did one episode but the rca did put out one episode of lootopia which was a discussion about the design of public loose. And what they said was that essentially this, we haven't got to a fully formed answer yet. You know, that there's constant need for improvement. There's, there's always new research. There's always new precedents to follow. So yeah, maybe a design competition is a, is a great step forward. And also what I like about design competitions when they're properly funded is that they raise public awareness. So you can show some quite crazy proposals that won't necessarily ever get built, but they just tell people we are doing something about it and you, they look what you could have in a dream world. Yeah, amazing. Um, so on to our next story. Thousands of takeaway delivery riders planned to strike on Valentine's Day over their employment status, which has left many riders struggling to earn the national living wage. This was reported by The Guardian this week. We are recording on Wednesday the 14th of February, which is the day of the proposed strike by delivery riders for companies like Deliveroo and Uber Eats, who are demanding better pay and conditions. Organised by the grassroots organisation Delivery Job UK, the strike has been planned to highlight the insecurity and meagre pay faced by those in the delivery driver industry who are currently classified as self-employed under the law. This means that their employers are able to pay them below the statutory minimum wage, which currently stands at 10.42 per hour. Delivery Job UK tweeted saying, quote, Drivers are voicing their frustration over appalling working conditions and low pay. Current rates force some to undertake risky driving to make ends meet. They went on, quote, This Valentine's Day strike highlights the growing tensions between gig economy workers and the platforms they work for. As consumers, it's crucial to consider the conditions under which our conveniences are delivered. Let's stand in solidarity with those fighting for fair wages and better working conditions. It's more than just a meal at stake. It's about the dignity and rights of every worker. In a bid to deter strikers, Deliveroo has reportedly offered a £10 boost for drivers completing five or more deliveries on 14th of Feb. This latest strike follows another grassroots organised UK food delivery strike on 2nd of February, which saw customers complaining they couldn't access the app and Deliveroo's dark kitchens shut down. So Rob, what do you make of these strikes? Do you think it'll be enough for companies to listen to worker demands or is more needed? It really feels like we're rediscovering strike action in the UK, which is odd because obviously it's kind of a key part of our identity and it's been been going on for hundreds of years. So there's a certain amount of re-education that needs to happen to point out that if you sell your labour, that means there is someone who is buying it. And if there is an imbalance between the value of that labour and the money that you're getting... You can take that labour away and the companies who employ you have to rethink their models of commerce. So the delivery drivers are having a terrible time and in, in, in experiencing the worst of the gig economy. And if, that's the, if that is the case, then fair play to them for just trying to take back a little bit of control. Yeah, and I think if the national living wage is 10.42 and the London living wage is 13.15 and people are earning below this, it really... It's really troubling to hear this, that people are really being taken advantage of. Um, 
you know, how how has Deliveroo and its competitors um, changed the urban realm and people's behaviour? Um, do you think it's been a good thing for cities like London? They're they're a really key feature on, um, you know, the people moving about about town and occupying pavements and roads. So, um, w- you know, what do you think it, it's impacted cities like London? I'm really genuinely conflicted about this. I think the pandemic highlighted the fact that there's lots of people who can't access shops, restaurants and cafes. So sometimes food delivery like this is really vital. You know, if you're looking after children and you can't leave the house um, and you can get dinner delivered to your door, you know, that's brilliant. I think the problem comes with the ubiquitous nature of the current delivery system. And it can disrupt communities because you're, you might feel that you don't need to access those spaces physically. Also, I mean, you see some of the busy spots, often at McDonald's, if we're honest, they become hugely overcrowded and stressful. And as you mentioned, you've got tons of bikes scattered around roads and pavements. And we have yet to understand the disruption that dark kitchens will cause to our cities. You know, I don't think they're particularly pleasant places to work and they're changing how we use land. Yeah, and the concept of a dark kitchen for people who might not have heard of them is is that it's food not made in the, the branch, made separately at an off-site location and then delivered. They don't sound like a place that's very friendly and help, healthy to, to work at. It's some sort of a warehouse off-site somewhere. Yeah, um, they're, yeah they're usually located in quite grim brownfield sites um, where little care is taken to produce nice buildings for people to occupy. And there's often a co-location between laundry services and, I mean, sometimes some urban farming as well, which is quite cool, but ultimately um, it is a real concern. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we'll move on to the culture section now. First up, we've got the London Society's annual Bannister Fletcher Lecture, which is presented by the architect and co-founder of Architecture Zero Zero and Dark Matter Labs, Indy Johar. Rob, What can listeners expect from this event? I think people that come to the talk are in for a bit of a wild ride. Indy is not your usual architect. He doesn't really design around the edges. He just goes for full systemic change on multiple levels simultaneously. So he wrote an essay in um, our book, London of the Future, which came out last year. And in that, he tackled all sorts of things such as local food distribution uh, that we were just talking about, retrofit of existing buildings, radical new materials, our relationship with new technologies like such as AI, and even different forms of governance that would put power back into the hands of the people. So he will be calling for a full uh, shift in how we think about the future of London. Amazing. Um, I was lucky enough to have a CPD given by him at our office years ago, and he is a great you know, really compelling speaker. So highly recommend people attend that. So that's on Wednesday, the 24th of April at the RABA headquarters, which is 66 Portland Place. And to book your tickets, go to the London Society website. Um, In other news, uh, Open City has collaborated with the iconic London fashion brand Burberry to create a printed walking guide to the architecture of Knightsbridge. This is the latest installment of the hugely popular Pocket London series of printed walking and cycling tours of the capital. So if you'd like to get your copy, visit the Open City website. And finally, the second part of the Baylight Fellowship is taking place on Friday the 1st of March. 
and participants will get the opportunity to visit a number of extraordinary residential landmarks in the southeast of England. To find out more, check out the Open City website. Um, Rob, where can people go to keep up with you and find out more about what's going on with the London Society? Well, I'm on Twitter under uh, Rob underscore Fiend, but I would just follow the London Society on all the usual platforms. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us on The Brief today. Thank you. You've been listening to The Brief from Open City, made in association with the London Society and the 20th Century Society. This show is made possible in part thanks to Bloomberg Connects, a free digital guide to art and cultural organisations around the world. A link to download Bloomberg Connects is in the show notes. If you've enjoyed The Brief and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which covers all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Brief and support Open City's wider work empowering young people from underrepresented communities, please become an Open City friend today. The link is in the show notes. The Brief is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Phineas Harper, Merlin Fulcher, Cyber Chadder and Fran Williams. The series editor is Merlin Fulcher. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible and equitable. Thank you.